in your Bible today, the book of Genesis, chapter number nine, if you have your Bible. We're going through the book. Somebody said to me one time, how do you know what to preach on every Sunday? And I said, whatever is next. And so we're at the next point here in Genesis chapter nine, aren't we? And we've gone through these eight chapters dealing with creation, dealing with the flood. Now we're at the end of the flood, and it's a new world that exists. And in Genesis chapter 9, we read part of that story. Stand with me, please. We'll read the first 17 verses. Follow with me in your Bible. And uh, how many of you got your Bible with you? Hold it up in the air here. Let me see them. Amen. Well, you came dressed for church, didn't you? Because that's what's important, that you follow and learn the Word of God. Okay, verse 1 today. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. At the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you be ye fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. With every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth, I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, and neither shall there be any more or any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a covenant, a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bows shall be in the cloud. I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Thank you, and you may be seated. 
If you would look back to chapter 8 and verse 21, you will see how that when Noah exited from the ark, that the first thing that he did was bring an offering to God. He worshiped God. I spoke on that an entire message at length. And then God's response to what was that he smelled that offering as a sweet savor, implying God was very, very pleased with the offering that Noah brought to him. Now, today, Noah has gotten off of the ark, and God now speaks to him. And in these verses, you find many of the direct words of God himself. These are not the words of God through somebody. God is directly speaking his word here, and we have it recorded. This is the first of what we call the great Bible covenants, and there's a number of them. There was a later covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant we refer to it as. And then there was the Mosaic covenant, when God made a covenant with the children of Israel through Moses. We call that covenant, by the way, the law. It encompasses a number of books. And then there's the covenant with King David, that there would be a Jewish kingdom and the future that would last throughout eternity. A covenant, as I've mentioned to you before, but it, I want you to clearly understand it, it's a formal binding agreement between two or more parties. A formal binding agreement between two or more parties of people. The word covenant comes from a Hebrew word which means to cut. It sounds a little gruesome and barbaric by our standards today, but in the old days, two parties or more, sometimes it would be three or four, they would get together and they would work out an agreement. And they would agree on certain conditions and responsibilities and blessings that they would bestow upon one another. And then they would cut the hand or the wrist. And then they would join hands. They called it mingling the blood. Over a period of time, covenants became known as blood covenants because the blood mingled together was a token or a sign that this is a serious, solemn, binding agreement, and we have pledged our own blood. Now, we wouldn't do that in the age of AIDS today, would we? But in that day, that was perfectly acceptable and uh, this was the way they signified their covenants. Now, the word covenant appears here in verse 8 and then seven more times. I won't read all the verses there, but seven times in this chapter alone, you have the word covenant. If you look in verse 12, God says the covenant is perpetual. The, Noah, the covenant with Noah is perpetual. It's to be forever. If you look in verse 16, he says it's an everlasting covenant, everlasting, which implies or means directly to me that that covenant is still in force today if it's everlasting. And then God said, I'll give you a sign. We won't mingle our blood, but I'm going to hang a rainbow in the clouds after the rain comes. And every time you look up and see that rainbow, you will remember that I've made some promises and some commitments. There won't be another universal flood, number one. 
And number two, it is a sign of my mercy that though I know that man is deeply flawed and sinful, that I'm going to show mercy to man. Go back to chapter 8, verse 21. Let me show you that again. The Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again ever curse the ground anymore. Now the old curse of Genesis 3 is still here. But God says, I won't curse the ground again. But I know that man is a fallen creature. And here's the passage. And I want you to underline this in your Bible. Every time we see this, it's important. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. God said, man is fallen. Man is a sinner. Man is flawed. Man is broken so badly so that every imagination that he comes up with, every thought of his, of his mind is a thought geared and leaning toward evil, if you will. Now, in verse 1 and verse 7, we look at some of the terms of this covenant with God. And God repeats his command twice, verse 1 and verse 7. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish or fill up the earth, if you will, with people. And then in verse 2, strange thing, it says, the fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth. The beasts are the wild creatures. If he's talking about the domesticated uh, creatures, he uses the word cattle or something like that. But the word beast always connotes the idea of the wild beast of the field, the undomesticated animals. And he said, they're going to flee from you. And so are the birds. And so are the fish. You know, you go stand beside a stream. If there's fish there, you'll see the minnows and the fish. Sometimes you'll see them dart away. Man, they have an instinctual fear of human beings. And I walk out in my yard, and there are the birds feeding on the lawn, and they take off. They have that in their nature. That's instinctive to them. They're afraid of man. Now, tamed animals, domesticated animals don't do that, but the wild beasts do that, don't they? And so then in verse 3, God authorizes the eating of meat. And he says, you can eat anything that moves. (laughs) Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat or food for you, even as the green herb that I gave you earlier before the flood, even as the green herb, I've given you all things to eat. And so God here authorizes the eating of meat. Now, if you're a vegetarian, that's okay with me, but uh, you're missing a lot in life, I'll tell you that. And uh, if you were doing it for health purposes, that's, that's your business. But God says you can eat any, all the green herbs now, and you can eat anything that moves in terms of meat. And so uh, there you have an open uh, opportunity that God has given to us. So I want to give you three points today in the message with that background in mind. Number one, I want you to see the sacredness of life. If you're taking notes with me, the sacredness of life. We look at verse 4. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. God said you can eat anything that moves, any 
type of flesh, any animal flesh. But he put a restriction there. You can't eat their blood. You can't eat their blood. Now, this is an everlasting covenant. Does that still hold? I think it does. And so I don't eat blood pudding. I don't uh, imbibe in the blood because I believe God restricted it even to the time that we live in. Now, why did he do that? Because the blood, hear me, is symbolically and literally the life of the flesh. And life is sacred. And God said, you can eat the meat, but I want you to respect the blood because the blood carries the life. And I want you to respect life. Now, if you are a Bible student, you want to look up that word life, you know what you will find? It's the word nephesh, the Hebrew word nephesh. What is nephesh? It means the soul. So I could read that, that the blood is the soul of the flesh. I don't know what all of those connections are, to be very honest with you, but there is something spiritual implied there about the blood. It is a very, very special thing in the mind of God. Now, just hold your hand there in Genesis 10, or uh, 9 rather, and go with me to the book of Leviticus chapter 17. Let me show you something else highly significant about the blood. The blood is mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible. The blood of beasts, animals, lambs, the blood of human beings. And it's so important. And I want, I want to just spend a moment on that. In Leviticus chapter 17, in verse number 10, and in the middle of the verse, God says, I will even set my face against the soul that eateth blood, and I will cut him off from among his people. For the life, the nephesh, the soul of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. The word atonement literally means a covering, a covering. And God said, you bring that little animal and you sacrifice that animal's blood and it covers your sins for a year. And then you come back next year at the feast and you sacrifice that little animal again. It never says that the blood of the beast Never one time does it say that the blood of the animals forgives or takes away sin. It was a temporary covering until the next offering could be made. But when it comes to Jesus, listen to this, John 1 and 29, he is the Lamb of God who, what does it say? Takes away the sin of the world. His blood covers our sin forever and ever and ever. You'll never have to answer for any sin that's under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's such an important truth. Now, so God says, don't eat the blood. I use the Defender's Study Bible. It's my favorite Bible of all, I believe. And here's the note of Dr. Henry Morris in the Defender's Bible. Quote, 
If the blood of an animal is an acceptable sacrifice to God for sin, of how much more value is the blood of a man? Boy, what a thought. If the blood of an animal is acceptable sacrifice to God for sin, or it was throughout the Old Testament, of how much more value is the blood of a man? And so this passage is a profoundly important passage right now in America because this passage implies and teaches that life and the blood is sacred. And we've about lost that in America. This passage teaches you reverence for life. Teach it to your children. A few weeks ago in May in Uvalde, Texas, a young man killed, what was it, 21 children, walked into a school with a gun and began to shoot and killed teachers and children. 21 people died. A bloodbath, then he went and took his own life. And then later, it appeared on the internet, it was up. I don't know, I, I looked at it myself. You could, perhaps you can still see it, I don't know. There's a video of him, and he has a plastic bag, a, a clear plastic bag. And in it are the bodies of several dead cats. He was known in that community he was the guy who went around killing the little animals, people's pets. He had a whole sack full of dead cats. Now, believe me, I'm not a cat lover. We got a cat. And that's all I'm going to say. I won't even dignify that cat with a name. It's just cat to me. But on the other hand, it's wrong when somebody's carrying on that kind of activity. You're killing for fun, quote fun. You're killing for some sort of morbid enjoyment. You're killing a living thing. God said we reverence life. We respect life. And it, here's the beginning of that train of Scripture throughout the Bible. Now, the blood of a cat is not sacred, though, in the sense of a man's blood. You know what makes a man or a woman's blood so special, so sacred? Go to verse 6 and look at the last phrase. They're made in the image of God. And so the blood of a human being is especially sacred. And so this passage teaches us to respect life, to respect the blood, to not ever be a participant in the wanton shedding of blood, that man's life represented by his blood is so sacred in God's eyes that anybody who takes a human life must forfeit his own life in payment. And so we go to the second point, the sacredness of life, number one. But number two is capital punishment is instituted here for murder. This is the teaching of the Word of God. And I know this is not a major, major issue. You're not hearing about it in the news and so on. And yet, 
It, it, is, it is a major issue because it's foundational to our attitudes about the sacredness of life, the reverence for life, about crime, a host of other issues that are happening today in our country. Capital punishment is ordered by God here in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 9. Read it with me again. Whoso sheddeth man's blood. Now, he's referring to murder, of course. By man, by some other human being, some institution shall shed his blood because man is special. He's made in the image of God. And his life has a specialness, a sacredness. It deserves a reverence, a respect that nothing else on the earth deserves. And so God set this up. Capital punishment is a judicial act. It is justice for a life that's been stolen from somebody through murder. It's equity. We hear so much about equity. You don't hear it in this context. Equity, not for some social slight, but equity because somebody took a weapon of some kind and took your life from you, the most precious thing you could ever have. They stole that life from you. They took your time, your money, your possessions, everything you have. And in one minute of violence, they took that from you. And so capital punishment is God's retribution for these horrific acts of violence. And if it's carried out promptly, it's a restraint. It reminds people that that's forbidden ground. Now, if you can get by with it for 20 or 30 years before you're executed, well, then you've lost your, you've lost your restraint factor in it. You say, how does that apply to us today? Well, do you know the statue, the lady uh, justice that we have where the woman is standing here and she's blindfolded? You can't tell it so much in that slide. In her left hand, she has here a balance, meaning fairness, equity, equality. And then in her right hand is the sword. And that is exactly what the Bible teaches. Justice is blindfolded. It's not prejudicial. It doesn't care about your economic status or the color of your skin or your gender. It doesn't care about all that. Everybody's treated the same. I'm blind. And then there's the sword that we wield on behalf of, on behalf of God according to this commandment. And then, of course, there's the balance, the balance of the state versus the individual, there's the balance of fairness that has got to be prescribed here. And listen to me. Now think with me. We measure the amount of respect for life in a society by the degree of punishment that we give when a life is taken. How much respect for, their, for life, how much of a reverence for life do you and I have and how much of a respect for life is there in this culture today? Because you measure the amount of respect for life in a society by the degree of punishment when a life is taken. And so this past week, how relevant. I sent you an email and I said, 
I'm going to give you a message as relevant as tomorrow's newspaper. And we go in our mind to the city of Memphis, Tennessee this week. Two different incidents that demonstrate that the attitude about capital punishment, the attitude about punishment of crime, the attitude about respect for life and reverence is fading away very rapidly in America. And so we have a 19-year-old man, Ezekiel Kelly. Two years ago, he was convicted of two counts of attempted first-degree murder. That was reduced to an assault charge and a plea bargain. And they sentenced, the judge sentenced him to three years in jail for two attempted murders. And then he only served 11 months and he got out of jail. And this week, you read the story, didn't you? He went on a killing rampage through Memphis. He even live streamed it for everybody on his cell phone. And he killed four people and he injured three other people critically. You measure the amount of respect for life in a society by the degree of punishment when a life is taken. Eliza Fletcher was a mother, 34 years old, a teacher, and she jogged every morning. And she went out and was for her jog this past week one morning. She was murdered her body was found in an abandoned house. The man that has been arrested and charged has a record of at least, at least one crime each year since 1995, including charges for kidnapping and rape. And today, of course, with the argument against capital punishment has always been from the liberal side that, well, you've got to be sure that you don't take the life of the innocent. But with DNA and video cameras everywhere you go today, there's not, not much question about these people, about their guilt or their innocence. Liberals have always opposed capital punishment. Our Supreme Court in the 1970s said it's cruel and unusual punishment. Cruel and unusual. Wait a minute. God, we're calling what God said to do cruel and unusual? You see, there's a lot here because it points out our attitude toward the Word of God as well, doesn't it? Now, we all know there have been tragic abuses. We know there have been injustices throughout history. We know that, though, on the other hand, that everyone is in danger when we lose respect for life in a society. Everybody's in danger. And all across the country, I've even heard it from members of our own church. I get uneasy now when I go certain places. I was told, don't go to a certain store recently. I won't name it. But they said, there's just crime all the time flourishing there. And we ought to have to live like that. But you see, that's part of the price of turning away from the Word of God. There must be protection. We know that of the innocent people. We know that people do get falsely charged. We know that there's mitigating circumstances. We know that for manslaughter, the, act, 
the accidental taking of a human life. Numbers chapter 35, God set up these cities around the nation called the cities of refuge, where if you kill somebody accidentally, you could go there and your life would be safe. We know that military combat is a mitigating circumstance. Second Kings chapter 2 and verse 5, there's a famous general, a national hero, Joab, a great, great, great military leader, but he killed a man. And David's last words to Solomon was, you need to take care of the injustice. Even a general doesn't, isn't able to get away with murder. And so we know that there are other exceptions. We're not saying everybody that's caused a death, but we're talking about people with proven first-degree murder. And the amount of justice we know shouldn't depend on your ability to pay. But we've got so many safeguards now in American society, so many safeguards. One of the prosecutors here in our area, solicitors, told me, you know what? We tend to put people in jail for life because it's cheaper than sending them to the uh, execution because there'll be 12 or 14, 15 years of appeals, and it'll cost more for them to be executed than it will for us to just incarcerate them, keep them for life, 40 years. Isn't that an upside-down, broken system? When God's Word is so clear in His everlasting covenant, He is dealing with law and order and justice here. None of the concerns that we have as a society are sufficient to set aside the decrees of God. None of my concerns are worthy of saying, we're just going to throw out what God's Word says. Two sociologists, one named Wilson, the other Hernston, they did the 17-year study on why do people become criminals? 17 years, two PhDs. Why do people become criminals? Here's the conclusion. Crime is caused by a lack of moral training during the formative years. <laughs> you need 17 years and two PhDs and a $100,000 research grant to figure that out? We got kids in kindergarten could probably come to that conclusion, couldn't they? The reason people become criminals is a lack of moral training during their formative years. And how does this affect the price of eggs in your China? Well, first of all, crime is being caused because of a breakdown of the family. The family's the primary place of moral instruction. And it challenges me. And you fathers, particularly those of you with young children, are you teaching your children respect for life, the sacredness of life? Are you teaching them what it means to be a moral person? Number two, I would say we have a crime wave because of biblical illiteracy. In former generations, we taught people the Bible. We taught it at home. We taught people the Bible at church. We taught people the Bible at school. We kicked it out of the school. Now we've cut down in our churches primarily to one service a week. And now we are busy, busy, busy. Are we teaching our children from the Word of God? Number three, I believe we're seeing a huge lack of respect for authority, and especially toward law enforcement. Defund the police. 
all these trends happening in our society. And then when we've killed 63 million people between conception and birth, do we expect the general public to respect law and to respect life and the sacredness of blood? In verse 6, there's something implied. It's very, very important. And it's the third point on the message. It's the establishment of human government. The establishment of human government. So you have at the beginning, point one I made to you is life is sacred. Reverence it. Number two, God's punishment for murder is capital punishment. It's the only way to teach, I believe, the ultimate respect for life. And then thirdly, God established human government. So we have the establishment of the family. Genesis chapter 2, God ordains the family. Now we have the second of the great institutions of society, and that is the institution of government, the state. And why would I say that? Well, in chapter 9 and verse 6, who is it that has the authority to administer this justice, to execute justice upon the murderer. He says, if a man sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed. But who has the right to do that? Does a family member get a gun and do a revenge act? Do the friends gather together and have a party? No, 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 no. God said there is a, an established order by which we will establish justice, and we'll call it government. We'll call it the the state. And God established the state, and notice why he did it. Primarily, the purpose is to execute judgment, justice, fairness, to punish evildoers, as the Bible says in other places. Before the flood, now let's Let's go back and put this in perspective. Before the flood, there was no government. Here's the beginning of government, Genesis chapter 9. People lived under the authority of their parents. They lived under the authority of family before the flood, almost 1,600 years. They lived in tribal groups that enforced some level of law and order. But basically, there was no government. And you know what we found out? We found out men cannot live without government. How does God describe the earth right before the flood? That every imagination is evil. Every thought of their mind is evil, it says. And then God describes it like this. The whole earth is corrupt and full of violence. Listen to me. Learn this about human nature. Man cannot govern himself. Man cannot govern himself. And so God established the principle here of government. He didn't give us the form. He didn't say a democracy or a republic or a monarchy, but he gave us the fact of government. It's implied here. And what's the first duty of government? Is to weld the sword, to execute justice. And turn with me to two passages in the New Testament real quickly. Romans chapter 13, and I take you back there as a key, key passage of Scripture for us. Romans 13 and then verse 4, 
speaking of the, the, the law enforcement and justice, it says, he, referring to the rulers, is the minister of God to thee for good. If you do evil, you should be afraid, for he bears not the sword in vain. He is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon the person that does evil. The very first purpose of government, remember that when you vote this year, the first purpose of government is to, it, to punish evildoers. If evildoers are not punished, people lose the incentive to do right. Turn to one more. 1 Peter chapter number 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, 1 Peter 2 and 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto the governor as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. And so is the will of God. The next verse. What is the purpose of government? The punishment of evildoers, to keep the streets safe. Man is not capable of governing himself. So God puts us in a family to train us and teach us and restrain sin. And then God puts a government, the second divine institution in place, to restrain sin to punish the evil. And then there's one more institution, you're familiar with it, the church. And God raised it up in the New Testament. And what's the purpose of the church? It is through the gospel to teach men how they can have a whole new nature, that they don't have to be like the nature they were born with, that through the new birth, that through salvation, that they can have a new birth imputed unto them. If I could have people stand across this congregation, and I'd just ask them, just give your testimony of how God has changed your life. There'd be somebody would stand and say, you know what? I used to lie every time I opened my mouth, preacher. But you know what? I really try to tell the truth now because God has changed my heart. And somebody else would stand up and say, before I knew Christ, I was immoral. Before I knew Christ, I was unfaithful to my wife or my husband. I practiced fornication and thought nothing about it. But Christ came into my life and he changed me. And somebody else over here would say, you know what, I was a thief. I was stealing from my employer. But God changed me from the inside out. And we go across the church, and testimony after testimony. Before I was saved, I used to curse, but God has changed my speech. Before I was saved, I used to mistreat my wife and my children. But you know what? God has given me a desire to treat them with kindness and gentleness and grace. God has changed my heart. And over and over, it could be a hundred different things. But we would hear the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God raised up a family to train us. He raised up law enforcement to restrain us from evil. He raised up the church 
so that we might be new creatures in Christ, God's three divine institutions. And if you're here today and you've never experienced that change, I guess one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Isaiah 53 and 5. Listen to these words. Don't look it up. Just listen. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised and beaten and maltreated for my iniquity. The punishment, the chastisement of my having peace with God was upon him. And with his stripes, when he was so cruelly beaten with his stripes, he has healed my soul. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in a nutshell. All we like sheep have gone astray. I did. You did. We turned everyone to his own way. That's what life is about, isn't it? Doing your own thing. We turned everyone to his own way. And then the Lord took all of our sins and he laid them upon the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. And the Bible says, if I will admit my sins, if I will repent of my sins and, and have a mind to turn from them, if I will abandon all my self-effort, tr- quit trying to do anything to contribute to my salvation because you can't contribute to it. A person can't pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. A sinner can't make himself clean. A leopard can't remove his spots. It's all of God. It's all of Jesus. It's none of you. And you acknowledge what Christ did for you when he died there, as I've just described. And you ask him into your life, and God, I cannot save myself, but please, I am desperate. I want you to give me a new heart, a new nature. I want you to save me from my sins. He's promised you that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our heads are bowed.